This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com. In recent years, there have been unsettling increases in childhood anxiety, ADHD, and developmental disorders. Lots of theories out there attempt to explain this jarring trend, and they focus on a range of variables, including the unhealthy modern diet, overexposure to a variety of digital media, and even the conditions and exposure of an unborn child in utero. All those are perfectly reasonable and perfectly accepted. But, according to my guest in this part of today's show, the increase in the incidence of mental illness and developmental disorders in children correlates directly to the increasing disinterest in and devaluing of motherhood in our culture. In a society that values personal fulfillment and achievement over familiar relationships, modern mothers often feel pressure to prioritize work and other endeavors over all else. But even if you get rid of the societal pressures, financial pressures often require women to get back to work right after their babies are born. And with so many distractions and everyday demands that drain our emotional reserves, it's even more vital now that mothers learn to connect with their children every day. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about how moms can be more physically and emotionally present with their children when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Peekaboo, peekaboo, smile. Smile, buddy. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. <sighs> yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. You know how boys are. Or maybe he's teething. Oh, poor baby, I think his gums hurt. Maybe he's just tired. Or maybe his tummy hurts. He didn't eat that much. Maybe he's not ticklish. You think maybe he's scared of the dog? Maybe he'll outgrow it. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe he just doesn't like smiling. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs or see a doctor today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Erica Komisar, who's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I have to say Being There is the title of one of my favorite books by Jersey Kaczynski. If you, uh, there's also a, a great movie with uh, Peter Sellers. I love that movie and that book. So, which has nothing to do with anything, but it, no. <laughs> anyway, thanks, <laughs> thanks for joining us. But uh, tell me about where we are in the continuum. It seems like if you pay attention to this sort of stuff, and I, I do, that things come in waves. There's a, a certain period of time where we're saying to mothers that if you don't put your kids into childcare and pursue your career, you're going to be doing some terrible damage to your kids. And then after a while, that one fades, and then it comes back into if you do put your children into childcare and pursue your career, you're going to be doing some terrible harm to your kids. 
you're you're trying to to smooth that out, but so where do you think that you fit into this? So, I mean, you're right in saying that society goes in waves. I think that, you know, the pendulum has swung very far from, I guess you'd say, the women's rights movement, which gave women so many choices and really so many women sacrificed so many things uh, to offer women choices. But, you know, now basically we're seeing that the pendulum has swung so far away from you know, in terms of focusing on our own needs as women, but not really focusing on the needs of our children. Um, and I was seeing this societal devaluation of mothering and how we were really failing our children, which is really why I wrote the book. Um, as a psychoanalyst and a parent guidance expert, I was seeing this epidemic level of emotionally troubled children in my practice with serious symptoms, earlier and earlier being diagnosed with things they, they were then being medicated for like ADHD and behavioral problems and aggression and social disorders. And I really was linking it to the absence of mothers. Uh, is it really mothers per se, or is it parents in general? I mean, in other words, are, so, are kids who are being raised predominantly by a dad who's you know, a stay-at-home dad or something, uh, and right. is there a devaluation of that as well that causes so, problems? I love dads. <laughs> I love dads, and I love that dads are more involved in the the care of their children, involved overall with their children. Um, but, you know, in the research that I really looked into, the attachment and neuroscience, it backed up what I believe to be true, which is mothers and fathers are not exactly interchangeable. Um, that for thousands of years, biologically, mothers and fathers have nurtured differently. Um, you know, when mothers and fathers nurture their children, they both produce uh, a, a chemical in the brain called oxytocin which we call the bonding chemical, the love chemical, if you will. Um, but it, it has a different effect on women and men. On women, it makes them more empathic, sensitive nurturers. And on men, it makes them more playfully stimulating. So the daddy will throw the baby up in the air higher, tickle more intensely, um, which isn't to say that fathers can't be taught to be sensitive, empathic nurturers, but it's not as if they're exactly interchangeable. And in the first three years, for the right brain development, social-emotional development. We really want to be more sensitive, empathic nurturers. But you would agree, I, I would hope, that kids need both. They do need both. So, again, for thousands of years, mothers have been the objects of attachment, meaning providing emotional security for children, and fathers, with their playful stimulation, have helped with separation. So, you know... It, it is important to have someone who is the attachment object and someone who is the separation object. Um, and then it brings into question the idea of single parents and how do they do that. And then the idea is that, you know, we need to have a separation object too, which is the function that fathers have served for so many thousands of years. So when you're talking about the book, are people lashing out at you a little bit for falling into the camp or seeming to fall into the camp of saying that mothers need to spend more time with their kids and less time elsewhere? I mean, it's, so it's a politically it's, incorrect sort of thing. I, well, it depends on the on the specific time we're in, but right this minute, I yeah. think it's a little bit incor politically incorrect. I, I'm not criticizing that. I'm just wondering what sort of reaction you're getting. So my hope in writing this book was to start a dialogue uh, to start a conversation, and a really difficult one, and a politically incorrect one, but a really important one. Um, because, again, this this mental 
uh, health crisis in children that I've been seeing that I've been linking to the absence of mothers is going to get worse. It's going to continue if we don't at least have this conversation. You know, we live in a country that doesn't provide any kind of maternity leave policy so all women of all socioeconomic backgrounds can be with their babies. Um, so, yeah, it's a dialogue and a hard one that we have to have. So how is it exactly that society is denigrating motherhood and, and mothers? Well, you know, again, society doesn't value mothering. Um, we value other things. We value material success and professional achievement and uh, more stuff. And, and we really don't um, value mothers and mothering and nurturing. And, you know, I've gotten a response from this book. People from all over the world, you know, just came out on Tuesday, have been emailing and calling and saying, thank you for recognizing me as a mother. Thank you for recognizing what I believe to be true, which is that I'm doing a wonderful thing for my child. I'm making sacrifices to give my child a good uh, foundation. So um, we really don't value mothering in this society. Is there a way to put a value on it? I mean, in, in other words, are, are the, the kids who are suffering the, the effects of, of lack of mothering, are they going to, so, you know, are they going to do worse in their life? Are they going to have they earn less money later on in life or something? Is there a way of, of putting an economic piece to this? I mean, certainly there are economic pieces to it um, in terms of depression and anxiety and all the disorders that come with it. Uh, in adolescence and adulthood, all kinds of addictions, you know, um, they cost society money, <clears throat> excuse me, they cost society money, and um, they make people less productive, and obviously they also make people unable to have meaningful relationships. <clears throat> so yes, there is a cost um, to society. Now, you talk about quality time mm-hmm. and the that that's essentially a myth, but to explain that a little bit. You I mean you're you're definitely in the quantity time over quality time camp. Well, actually, I'm in both. Um, I feel that you can't really talk about children and talk about quality time alone because quality time is on adult time, and children need their mothers all day long throughout the day from moment to moment on their terms, and so. You know, really, we need both quantity and quality. Okay, but that's that's a tough thing to do. I mean, especially that's kind of at the heart of the whole argument that you're making is that women are spending so much time elsewhere that they don't have the quantity. And so their, their right. hope is that they're going to be able to make it up by having a really, really great time for a limited amount of time. So let me describe what mothers do throughout the day and why quantity is important as well as quality. Um, There's two important functions that mothers fulfill for children. One is to protect children from stress throughout the day, to buffer them from stress. That then lays the foundation for resilience to stress going forward. The other important function that mothers serve is to regulate her baby's emotions from moment to moment throughout the day, meaning she makes sure that the baby doesn't go too high and too low. After three years, the baby then internalizes the ability to regulate their own emotions. So these are really critical functions that happen all day long. So when a mother is there just for one or two hours a day, 
she's really missing the opportunity to both regulate her baby's emotions and provide protection from stress throughout the day. We're coming up on a break, and when we get back, I want to have you talk in more detail about the costs to children of not having mom around, but give us one quick example as a preview. Well, the disorders that I'm seeing in my practice are stress disorders, um, and they're also emotional regulation disorders. So what I'm really seeing in the cost is an increase in ADHD is, in a way, the child's um, response to stress, meaning becoming what we call hypervigilant. Um, and in response to stress, we can often become um, hyperactive, seeming hyperactive, and often aggressive. And so these are some of the things I'm seeing. Which Talking with Erica Komisar, who's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will keep talking with Erica Komisar. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times, when we were more active and ate more healthy foods, and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave. But unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check, change, control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Erica Komisar, who's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We're just talking about some of the effects, the negative effects on kids when mom is not there, and you were talking about uh, depression. Talk, please talk about a few more of those. I think it's important to, to set the stage at least. Sure. So another thing that I'm seeing in my practice is the inability of young children under the age of three to regulate their emotions. So um, I'll get calls from schools, um, too many calls from schools and from parents um, saying that um, the school is reporting that their child can't regulate their anger, can't regulate their focus, can't regulate, can't sit in circle time. Um, and so really we're seeing more 
um, more and more children who really cannot regulate their emotions in, in, at a very early age. Now, how can you tell that it's specifically the, the absence of the mother? I mean, there's, there's so many other factors that are going on there. I mean, if, if a mom is not able to spend as much time with her kids, she may be stressed about something. There may be more tension between the, the parents in the home that could lead to some of the symptoms that you're talking about, or there could be financial issues. Uh, you know, how, how do you separate that out? So there are many factors, but I'm going to go back to my my thesis, which is, you know, Myron Hoffer at Columbia University uses a term that I like, which is he says mothers are the the neuropsychobiological regulators for children. They basically regulate children's emotions throughout the day. So when mothers come to me and say my child is having these difficulties, I help that mother to be as present as possible emotionally and physically. And I've seen this dramatic, I mean, a dramatic impact on the child's behavior and the, the harmony in the house and at school. So I've been doing this work for 28 years, and basically my, my practice is a parent guidance practice. So it's really, a lot of this book is based on my own work, as well as all of the attachment and neuroscience and epigenetics research that's out there. And what do you tell moms who are not able to do this, that, that there are too many financial issues or whatever kinds of issues that there are, and, and no, no judgments involved here. But there are, pe- people are just not going to be able to do it as much as they'd like to. So how do you keep right. them from feeling guilty about what's happening with their kids? So there's two issues there. One is that I don't see guilt as a bad thing unless it's excessive and obsessive. Um, I see guilt as a signal feeling, so I say every mother, even a mother who has to work, has some choices, and my book is really a book of information and advice for mothers, so they can make the best, most informed choices for themselves and their families, and yes, there are mothers out there who have to work, and there are things you can do as a working mother to repair some of the absence and the separation, but what I'm seeing in my practice and overall in society is that there are also many mothers who work for lifestyle reasons or who work because they are running away from postpartum depression, feelings of boredom or, um, you know, having difficulty really caring for their babies. So, and this is something that I treat in my practice. You know, this is, this is the mainstay of my practice. Are you saying that, that spending more time with the kids can help with postpartum depression? Absolutely. So when mothers and babies are separated, they actually produce cortisol, which is a stress hormone, both mothers and babies. And one of the reasons that mothers feel guilty is because they're actually feeling under stress when they're separated from their babies. Now, there are many mothers who didn't have, um, you'd say, didn't have a great experience of, of their own mothers. And we say mothering is passed down generationally. So some of the postpartum depression we're seeing is actually many generations of mothers not passing down a joy of nurturing. You talk about how maternity leave is, is not sufficiently long. And in this country, we, are, we have a terrible problem with it, and we don't, don't want to get into that. That's a whole other show. But there, there is the Family Leave Act, which provides 12 weeks of unpaid. In different states, in California, there's a, a slightly paid one. And other places have got uh, partly paid leaves. But how, how much time do you need? Or, or how much would so, be ideal if, if money were not an issue and, and all companies were able to do it? How much time would 
would so be what enough. I say in the book is more is more, um, and I say it throughout the book, meaning, you know, for mothers who have to work, um, for mothers who want to know how much they should be with their babies, I say more is more. And in terms of maternity leave, listen, there are some countries in this world, civilized countries, who give mothers three years of paid maternity leave. <laughs> I'm a realist. I don't think we're going to get that in this country. But I do think it's realistic to believe that we could at some point have six months of paid maternity leave full pay and another six months of partial pay and maybe another two years of flexibility and control. Now, you've talked about how moms are regulating the emotions of the child during the day. How's that happening? Take us through a a given day. So mothers, every time they comfort a baby, every time they soothe a baby, They're actually regulating the baby's emotions. Every time a baby gets very excited and the mother kind of meets the baby's excitement and brings them back down, that's the regulation that happens all day long. And it's that that's missing in society. I mean, we've seen an epidemic not just in children but in adults who can't regulate their emotions because, remember, we're three generations into rejecting mothering. So this kind of regulation that I'm talking about exists in adults too. Um, adults are using more and more medication to regulate their emotions instead of having the ability to do it internally. Okay, and how how is that going to happen, though? How does it happen with children, or how does it happen with adults? No, how, how does that happen with adults? So with adults, actually, therapy has been shown to restart right brain development. So the part of the brain that's responsible for emotional regulation that is developing in the first three years, that is 85% developed at the end of the first three years, Um, therapy has actually been shown to restart the development of that part of the brain. Hmm. And so, I mean, that's something that you would have adults get more therapy or kids who have not had mom around get therapy, or does it make, make a difference? Does it work both ways? Well, again... I'm a therapist, and I believe in therapy. I don't think it's it's widely available to people in this country as it should be. You know, we talk a big game about wanting, you know, there to be more focus on mental health, but then we don't, like with maternity leave, we don't provide the services or the money to back up, to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. Right. So what do you tell moms about what to do during the day. I mean, I think a lot of people who have stayed home with kids, and I was a stay-at-home dad for a number of years, and, you know, on, honestly, there there are moments where you think, i got to get out of here. This is just mind-numbing. And I know mm-hmm. that, that plenty of moms have the same thing, and, and it's, you know, it's not always fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I always say that every job has boring moments, <laughs> and every job has moments where you need to get away and you need a little bit of separation. So, We were never meant to be with our babies every single second, but we were also never meant to raise children in isolation. Um, And so, you know, we were always surrounded in history by circles of women and circles of family members who provided us with support and relieved us. And, you know, we're very isolated, which is another, you know, sort of one of the causes of a lot of the postpartum depression that we're seeing. All right. So where do we go from here? Well, I'd like this book to really start the conversation about the importance of mothers and for that to lead us to a place where we 
make better choices. You know, whatever choices we do have, that we make the most informed choices we can make to prioritize or reprioritize our children. And in terms of policy, I'm hoping that, you know, the government will recognize the importance of mothers as not only being a luxury, yeah, but being a necessity. And do you think that we're close to getting that, or do you think it's an actual possibility? Because it's hard enough to get, you know, paid leave anywhere or, or even unpaid leave in a lot of cases. Well, I wrote this book because I believe that you can never stop trying. And I think to make the best argument I can as a clinician and someone who's looked into all of the research to say we actually have proof now that for the mental health of our children, future generations, it is no longer a luxury to be thinking about whether mothers and babies should be together in the first three years. Erica Komisar is the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica, thanks so much. Thank you, Armin. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. You hear it every time you finish a meal and never feel anything. But if we were able to associate this sound with a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural response from you. Save the food. Why are we doing this, you may ask. Save the food. Because this ad is trying to change your after-meal behaviour through brainwashing. Because food waste costs the average family $1,500 a year. Save the food. Cha-ching. And $1,500 extra bucks is like getting a pay raise. Save the food. Cha-ching. You're promoted. Which could pay for your child's braces. Save the food. Cha-ching. You're promoted. Check out my braces. So when you hear this sound, rethink your behaviour. Cook it. Store it. Share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. You know, with more and more states legalizing marijuana, I'm starting to get a lot of questions about how safe it is, particularly during pregnancy, and here's one of those. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I are in our early 30s and want to start a family. To be perfectly honest, we've been regular weed and tobacco smokers for years. To get ready for pregnancy, though, we both quit cigarettes cold turkey. Beyond that, we disagree. I think we should also give up marijuana. My wife has reluctantly agreed to stop smoking, but she has a medical marijuana card and says that the edible kind is perfectly healthy and won't hurt the baby. Is consuming marijuana during pregnancy okay? If not, are the tablets or drops any better than smoking? To be blunt, Consuming marijuana during pregnancy is a terrible and potentially dangerous idea. I just came back from a conference where one of the speakers, Ira Chasnoff, talked about this exact topic. To sum up his findings about marijuana, contrary to popular perception, it is not a harmless drug, especially when used during pregnancy. Chasnoff cites a large study done by the U.S. National Birth Defects Prevention Center that found that fetuses exposed to marijuana during the first four weeks of pregnancy are at increased risk of developing anencephaly, which is a severe birth defect that keeps a major chunk of the brain and skull from developing. Prenatal exposure to marijuana may also interfere with the neurotransmitter systems that govern the baby's cognitive and emotional functions. And the effects of prenatal marijuana exposure can last a lifetime. According to Chasnoff, at age 6, children who had been exposed to marijuana in utero had lower verbal reasoning scores and deficits in composite, short-term memory, and qualitative intelligence scores. Ten-year-olds prenatally exposed to marijuana were more likely to be hyperactive and impulsive, 
have attention problems and be depressed. Depression and attention issues at age 10 are major predictors of delinquency at age 14. And 14-year-olds whose mothers were heavy users during the first trimester had lower scores on spelling, reading, and math. The effects of prenatal exposure continue to show up well into young adulthood and possibly beyond. As you might suspect, not everyone agrees about just how bad marijuana during pregnancy is for the baby. A study done at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, for example, found a connection between marijuana smoking and preterm birth and low birth weight. But since many mothers who smoke dope also smoke cigarettes, which are indisputably linked to preterm birth and low birth weight, the researchers couldn't quite be sure that the negative effects were caused by the marijuana. However, those researchers were very careful to note that marijuana use during pregnancy should not be encouraged or condoned. To answer your question about the relative danger of smoking dope versus eating it, I spoke to two doctors. Both believe that smoking is more dangerous because the psychoactive chemical in the plant, THC, goes straight from the lungs into the bloodstream. Ingesting marijuana via the stomach, however, takes it through the liver where some of the THC may be filtered out, thereby reducing the negative effects. Bottom line, neither you nor your wife should smoke, eat, drink, or consume marijuana in any other way while she's pregnant. Even if your wife is on the fence, I think it's completely irresponsible of her to subject your baby to a potential hazard that is 100% preventable. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.